Survival podcast. Today's episode is called 15 Years Lessons from 15 Years Behind the Microphone, right? Let's get the mic into the frame a little bit anyway, because it is an, an interesting thing to look back right now and think that it's been a decade and a half minus 19 days. The official anniversary date is June the 20th. I'm doing this episode today because we released tickets to the uh, 15-year anniversary uh, celebration today, and that celebration will be one month after the official anniversary. That'll be on July 20th. It just seemed fitting to do the two together. And I want to point out real quick here, um, as we start live stream, starting from seeing people come into the live stream, when you are on the live stream and you want to ask me a question, and I do not have a guest with me, it is imperative that you put your first couple words in all caps. Because if you don't do that, I only got one good eye as it is. I'm multitasking here. I may not see it. StreamYard has a really cool feature where I can just click a little star and it puts you into a queue and we answer your questions at the end. So please remember to do that for me uh, if you can. Just first couple words is all I need in all caps. That That's pretty easy to see out of the side of my one good eye. And I can go ahead and, and do that for you. All right. So, yeah, we're going to go through time today. We're going to start off at the very beginning, uh, how the show was built across time. We're going to talk about the early years of podcasting because the early years of TSP were actually the er early years of podcasting as a thing. We're going to talk about some of my proudest moments from the show and, and biggest victories, some big mistakes and some lessons learned. Not everything went off without a hitch. Um, we're talking a little bit about overcoming the urge to quit. I don't know if I ever had the urge to quit, but there were times when things were hard. And there were times when at the very beginning, when my wife is like, you can't keep doing this with the workload that I had at the time because I had a job and a podcast. And I was always, I was always running this like a full-time business almost from the, I would say by the second or third week, it became something I was very serious about. I knew it was going to become something we're talking about some technical aspects and, and challenges that came with that. Um, one of the biggest questions I get and have gotten over the years, how the hell do you come up with new content all the time? We'll talk about that. Uh, the role of listener feedback and integration interaction. There's a huge piece of those two that go together. Um, leveraging niches. We're going to talk about like the preparedness niche, the permaculture niche, and the entrepreneurship niche, because even though we went into a lot of different niches over the years and we continue to do so and we will, those are kind of the three big ones. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about how Bitcoin played into this. Um, we'll talk about how podcasting as a profession impacts your personal and your professional life, both when you're doing a job and a podcast, or in my case, owning another company and owning a podcast. Um, and then afterwards, when, if you get to full-time podcasting, what does that mean for your life? Does it mean that you just screw off every day and work half an hour and then do, you know, an hour of podcasting? No, it's, uh, it, it's kind of interesting the, the way this all played out. So that's what we're going to talk about advice for new podcasters. We'll talk about some reflections, what I would have done differently and the future of the show. So we're going to cover all that again today. And as people keep coming into the live stream again, if you have any questions or talking points for me, Please make sure that the very beginning of that two or three words is all caps, and then I will start that for you. Please don't do all caps 
unless it is for me because it just makes my job harder when I'm, again, solo on a podcast. Before we get into all this, though, I want to bring a couple things up for you. Number one, John Bush just did an excellent job with the Exit and Build Conference. I was honored to speak there yet again. He now has uh, a really great thing called the Exit and Build Accelerator. Some of the instructors involved with this are Curtis Stone, uh, Jeff Lawton, and Joel Salatin. And this is really designed to help you get from point A, which is where you are, to point B, where you want to be, geographically speaking. So if you've listened to me over the years say, get out, get out, get out. Get yourself out of these cities. Even if it's not that far, just a little bit outside. Get yourself a little bit of land. Get yourself a little bit of self-sufficiency and live a better life. And you're like, he says it, but how do I do it? This is a step-by-step plan of how to do that. You can uh, find links for it in the video notes and the audio Uh, Today, we'll have links to it, and it is available at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Next up, just a quick announcement, and we have sold, I think, like 30 tickets already since I released it uh, a couple hours ago, Uh, but there are tickets now on sale for the 15-year anniversary celebration. It will be Thursday, July 20th from 5 to 9 p.m. at a place called Pinstripes. Does that sound like bowling? Yeah, there's bowling there, but the bowling there is not like, it's not a bowling alley. It's a badass bar with private bowling lounges. Part of the area we reserve for this is a four-lane private lounge. I've reserved that as much for the couches and the environment as it is for the bowling. People that want to bowl can bowl. People that don't want to bowl don't have to. You have to go deal with anybody at counter or anything. They just have a bunch of shoes and a bunch of balls. Pick your size, pick your ball, and bowl. Make an ass out of yourself with a bunch of new friends. Have fun. Really cool kind of industrial feel, high-end place. Badass bar. We'll have our own dedicated bar staff. It is 80 bucks. That is to cover the cost of the venue and the food and everything else per person. I make no money on it. I don't want to make money on an anniversary sale. If I was fat cat rich, I wouldn't even charge for it. I just say 75 people get in whoever comes first. Uh, but I'm not fat cat rich. Podcasting's worked out well, but not quite that well. So if you want to come get your ticket, and one thing I would encourage some of y'all to do who might be like, you know, I'd really like to go. But it is kind of a long drive. And I understand that, man, because I've had people I've had people show up to events like this, like the 10 year. And, you know, you're like, well, where'd you drive in from or whatever? And and dudes like Chicago, me and my boy, we drove down and I'm like, you drove from Chicago to Dallas for a four hour party. And that's humbling. I mean, that is extremely humbling. It says something about, I guess, what we've done. If somebody else coming from L.A., one of the guys that bought a ticket this morning, he's coming in from northern Iowa you guys that are going to travel that distance, if if it's kind of a challenge, get on the Telegram group and, and talk to people and see if there's somebody you can kind of partner up with. Uh, you know, you can share a room, you could, you know, joint car ride down or something like that and, you know, build a, build a new relationship within the community. It's it's amazing what's happened out of this community. We'll be talking about some of that. So let's let's start digging into it. Let's let's start off with like getting into podcasting. And I'm hoping this show is a great episode for new people to understand the context of something you just found that you realize is something really cool. This community is an amazing community for people that have been around. Cause we have people already here. Like, like Riley saying, I found Jack in 2014 from John Willis shook both of y'all's hands last year and truly appreciate the virtual mentorship. Yeah. People have been around 2014. I've got people that have been around since 2008 when we started. And that's pretty crazy. And that's how far back this goes. A decade and a half is a long time. Put it in perspective. I was thinking about it today. I am now the age of a boomer, the age of a boomer 
was when I started. All right. So I'm a Gen Xer. I'm kind of an older, not oldest you could be, but I'm an older Gen Xer. And in the time I've been doing this podcast, I've, I've become the age of the people we called boomers in 2008 when I started. Millennials are now as old or older than I was. We, we've, we've crossed a generational gap in the time frame. That's how long this has been around. When I started podcasting, there were not a lot of podcasts. Um, iPhones existed, but they were relatively new. They were expensive. A lot of things hadn't been worked out in them yet. And most people listen to podcasts on an iPod. And in fact, I went out and I bought an 80 gig iPod, the big brick one. And it's probably around here somewhere and it probably still works because I was like, if I'm going to be in podcasting, I have to be a podcast consumer as well and understand both sides of the equation. So I did that and I started building the show. One of the cool things we did in the very beginning, we ran a listener appreciation contest. And I just had this form. You filled it out and you agreed to tell at least two people. That's all you had to do. I don't care if you do it online. I don't care if you do it in person. You agree to tell at least two people about the show on an honor system and you got entered. And at the end of that first six months, because we started in June, we went to January. I said, if we had a thousand listeners, just a thousand listeners, that I would give away an iPod Nano to one person I would draw out of that group of people. And I gave a little iPod Nano away, and I had it custom inscribed on the back of it with be an ant, not a grasshopper. And I'm betting you, whoever that person is, he probably still has that old iPod, that old iPod Nano. I mean, that's how, that's how I just want to set the perspective. But let's talk about how this all happened for those that haven't heard the story before. So at the time, I was working with a British entrepreneur named Neil Franklin. Neil's a real switched on guy. Like any, you know, assertive type A personalities. We butted heads, but we loved each other, still do as brothers. We worked together for about six years, but we were also getting to a point, right? Like this is the thing about partnerships. If you're going to have a partnership, we're going to talk in a minute. How about some of my regrets or creating partnerships that I probably shouldn't have. But if you're going to have partners, you want a partner that plays against your weakness. Well, so you don't want partners that have the same weaknesses. Neil and I were the same person. We had the same weaknesses. He was just more eccentric than me. And the way I would describe Neil is he was the kind of guy that if you take him fishing, you go out to a place that always produces for you, you throw out some marker buoys, you, you throw the trolling motor in, and you just start fishing, and you're not, you haven't caught a fish in the first five minutes. He wants to pull the lines up and go fish somewhere else. Except he did that with marketing, which drove me nuts because we haven't done this long enough to get a test result so we can start refining it. And so I was getting to a point where, like, maybe this isn't what I want to do anymore. We had also just established a new company. It was called Franklin Spirito Media, and we were taking clients for marketing. So against his – but he the good part about that was he goes, well, you run this, and I'll just stay out of the way, and you just keep performing as COO of this other company, and you do run both companies. So I'm running two companies. One is the president, one is the chief operations officer, and I'm going to start a podcast. And the way we start the podcast – is I'm also like lead sales guy for the new company because I hadn't found a sales guy that could, you know, sell ice, uh, sell water to a, a guy in a desert yet. And so I go out and I close the sale. It was like a $30,000 sale to do first year of marketing, website development, and a podcast for financial advisor. Right? And a lot of you guys know I call financial advisors financial liars, and many of them are. But I get the contract. He signs. He gives us a deposit. I take it back to my lead web developer and go, here, do this. He looks through it and goes, you know, 
I can do all of this. I have no idea how to set up podcast feeds or anything like that yet. And it was really simple. You install the plugin to WordPress, just like we all did. But I was like, don't worry about it. I've been kind of kicking around an idea in my head about doing a podcast myself. And there was a little piece of me that like was maybe this is my out. Maybe this is my walk away thing. Now, I built a lot of side businesses. Some made a lot of money. Some made a little money. Some completely failed. The ones that made a lot of money were so grabbing onto a trend that when the trend ended, they ended. For instance, right before this period of time, I was making a shitload of money running Google ads on little niche websites. And then Google changed the whole way that paid out. So I went from like one month knocking down like a $12,000 commission to the next month being $2,500 to the next month being like 500 bucks. So I, I had in my head this idea that no matter what you do, there's always the potential for it not to last. But if you want it to last, it needs to be for yourself. And I started thinking about the fact that my whole life up till that point, and it's hard to imagine, but I was in my mid-30s. And, and I'd been working my ass off my whole life, it seemed. And I, I, I came up in the corporate world really fast for a dude without a degree. And so I had ended up having, you know, a lot of speaking engagements. I would stand in front of rooms of 100, 200, 300, 500, a couple thousand people sometimes. And whether it was a technical explanation or whether it was like a marketing presentation or something, I had done and I really enjoyed speaking. And I enjoyed the interaction. with the audience. Well, maybe I can do something with this. And so I was like, well, do I do technology? Do I talk about SEO and web marketing services? And I, I realized like, I didn't actually give a flying crap about any of that stuff. It was a means to an end. I had learned SEO so I could make money. I didn't learn SEO because I loved SEO. I didn't learn SEO because I loved algorithms and, you know, word counts and meta tags and link algorithms. Like I didn't really care about that. I was just kind of a smart guy and knew that if I got people to go a place, I could make money with them. So like, I don't want to do that. And I started thinking about what do you care about? And number one was teaching. Actually, before preparedness, survival, any of that shit, I want to teach. And then I said, but I also want to teach willing students. I don't want to beg somebody to freaking come to me to learn. I want to teach my way. And if you don't like it, go screw. And if nobody listens, nobody listens. That was literally how I felt about this. And so I, I slapped this little site together. I did some research on the niches and I was like, you know, there's a financial crisis coming. This is 08 before the crisis hit. I knew that was going to happen because I was tying into Neil's financial advisors and investment managers. And these are the people you don't get to talk to unless you're worth, you know, 30 or 40 million bucks. So I knew this was coming. We had restructured the entire company uh, conglomerate to be prepared for a recession. And I'm like, so that's important. But I love gardening. I love fishing. I love hunting. Hard times are coming. Hard times always show up for some people. I've always kind of been a prepper at heart, even though I didn't call myself that way back when we lived in rural PA. You just were a prepper because if you didn't do it and something went wrong, then you suffered. Right. So I'm like, this is going to be a hot niche. This is going to fit. If it's it's an umbrella for everything I want to do. I found a domain name, the survivalpodcast.com. I paid my web developer out of pocket to create the first image of Val, which is the uh, logo that we use still today. Uh, for the survival podcast and I threw together a crappy site and I took a, a, 
MP3 recorder, for those on the video, about as big as this remote control. That's all it was. And a cheap Plantronics headset. And I got in my car and I started doing a podcast. And I would get to work every day, um, get off the road. Being an owner has its privileges. I'd go in my office and close the door. Nobody would come in there unless they knocked on the door first. They knew better. You anger the jack early in the morning, bad things would happen. And I would edit, upload, and hit publish. And that whole operation would take me less than five minutes. There was not a lot that went into it. I systemized it to where the bumper was already there. Basically, I hit put plugged in the recorder, drug a file over like an FTP program, and started doing my daily work. And when the thing finished loading, I put it in Vegas, threw an output on it, boom, made a file out of it. Then I FTP'd it to the server, copied a link, dropped it in a hit publish. And it probably took me longer to say that if you take out waiting for the computer to do its job than it took me to do it. And I think this is one of the things that made me really successful as a podcaster. I can keep up, right? I can keep up this pace because I don't rely on anybody. I get emails all the time. Hey, man, Jack, can we do your editing for you? And I'm like, it would take me longer to get the files to you than to do the editing. I developed, while I was in this 18-month window, this system of making it as expedient as fast as possible, and I did audio only. And I really didn't even start doing video heavily. I didn't do it for the show until about a year and a half, two years ago, right? So... That's kind of how it all started out. It was a, it was a, like, we got to figure this out. I'll do it. And what happened was about two weeks into it, I come home from work and I didn't want to punch a hole in the door anymore after being like, and I mean, it was like an hour and a half commute in the afternoon. My commute in the mornings was like 35, 45 minutes, but the afternoon commute because of the timing was much worse. And I realized it was onto something, but then the challenges came and the challenges weren't, how to make the show really good or what topic to come up with. That actually came really easy. I was telling my grandson today, and I'm so proud of him. He and his baseball team for their division just won the, the championship. I, I don't really know exactly how many teams are in that, but they won first place. They worked their ass off. They played hard. And I, I've been trying to teach him the, the, the ethics of hard work. And so I said, so why do you think you won? He, well, because we're good or what? I'm like, no, it's because you work so hard. You worked hard, you committed, you practiced. Because it's a competitive developmental league that he's in, and they practice a lot. They he goes to his coach's house. See when it's not practice, they have a batting cage. He's a pitcher. Like he works really hard. He's here every day working on that. And I've been trying to get him to see the correlation between hard work, success, and happiness. So I told you know, my my wife started telling him about how if there's video of you, you should watch it, and you should watch it as much for what you do wrong as for what you do right. Well, that's what I was doing with the show. When I was in the car, I'd record it in the morning and listen to it on the way home. And a lot of times I could listen to it twice and I would make mental notes of every placeholder, every mistake, everything that I said. I didn't really mean what I said. And I improved it over that year. But the toll of that was that I was literally getting up at 3 a.m. and doing all my pre-show work for that day, hitting the door at 6 and then spending all that time on the road. Anyway, um, I realized that, you know, we were really on to something. I was, I was getting better and better with it. And at that 18-month period, we went full-time. But in that period, my wife would be like, 
how long are you going to do this? And so I was probably about nine months in when she said that. And I said, until I can quit. And she said, when do you think you can quit? I said, I can quit in about three more months. There'll be enough revenue. There'll be enough buildup. I'll be sure of what we're doing. I won't be putting our lifestyle at risk. Um, we're also making a lot of money from both sides now so we can stack some cash. We had a move planned to Arkansas, which we eventually did. So, like, it all, I'm like, we got to do this. I got to do this three more months. He's like, okay, do it. Three more months comes around, and I go to my partner, and I say, um, you know, this has been a great six-year relationship. I, uh, I'm, I'm doing something on my own, and I really want freedom, and I want to I go walk away, and I want to do it right. What can I do to ease this transition? And after uh, several uh, rounds of martinis and him basically trying to talk me out of it, realizing I was steadfast, he said, okay, we have one company that's in a lot of trouble. If you let go of everything else, will you take over that company as COO and fix it? And then, you know, I've been good to you. That's what I'm asking you for on the way out. And I said, well, how long? He said, give me six months. Give me the end of year. This was like, you know, just give me the end of the year. And I was like, I can do that. <laughs> the real challenge. Going to my wife, who had expected that it was done, and saying, it's not done. It's through the end of the year. And so we did that. And I remember telling her, just give me six more months. And she said, what about the three months, three months ago? And I said, this is different. I always keep my word. This man was good to me. I do think I can fix the problem. Whether or not he can keep it fixed after I leave is not my problem. So I did it. And I fixed the company. And I worked as hard for that six months as I had worked any other point in my life doing two totally different things. And then right before the Christmas holiday, I turned in my resignation. The ownership that I had in several of the companies, I basically gave back to Neil for almost nothing, for almost nothing. Uh, we did do a buyout of shares, a very small amount of money, just so everything was legally clean. And I walked away. And on January 2nd, 2010, I did my first episode of the Survival Podcast ever, or ever from home. And from that point forward, I've done nothing else in my life other than podcast. And it has been an amazing experience. And the podcast evolved. And that was the first major evolution in the podcast was that point where I was like, wait a minute. Now I'm not sitting in a car weaving in and out of traffic at 85 miles an hour with people trying to kill me because they don't know how to drive on a highway while hail or rain is bouncing off. Cause that, I mean, I went through all of that kind of shit back then. There's even a clip that's hidden on the audio server of me almost getting T-boned from behind where you hear me go, Oh fuck. And like, there's like screeching tires and shit. Right? Like, so I'm like, I don't have to deal with that anymore. So I started doing call-in shows. I got an 800 number. We really don't do that anymore. People would call in and leave messages. I would answer them. I started doing a lot more interaction with the audience because I could answer your questions. I did some Q&A in the car, but it wasn't the same. I'm like, wait a minute. I can do what all the other podcasters do now. I can have guests. So that created the guest flow. Then one of my very first guests was a good friend I had made through the preparedness industry named Ron Hood. 
who owns survival.com and had been around forever today in the industry. Had been around since before the internet. That's how early he was into the game. And uh, I had him on as a guest. And it was not a great interview. We worked it out, but I could tell right away that like what he thought we were going to talk about and what I thought we were going to talk about were two different things. And then the guest form came. Ron Hood is the genesis of the guest form on the website. That's why people are like, I want to be on the show. Okay, we'll fill out the guest form. But I want to tell you about fill out the guest form. But see, I was wondering, fill out the guest form or you don't get on the show. Right? Ron Paul, we eventually had on the show, Ron Paul filled out the guest form. John McAfee was going to be on the show, but they refused to fill out a guest form, so he didn't get to be on the show. I kind of regret that he wasn't on the show, but not the reason why. We put that system in place as a foundational component so that we would have this great interaction between the the host and the guest, and I think it's been the best thing we've done. What it's allowed me to do is look at a thing and go, no, you don't get on. This is a late-night infomercial to sell some kind of bullshit. Bye. Right? Or... Hey, you know, I looked at this. I'm not so sure. Take another stab at it or go. This is great. And it's been our screening process, but it's also created this synergy. And pretty much every podcaster that I know in real life, many of whom grew right out of our community, has adopted that form into their own website for screening guests. And I don't know that everybody does it, but I'll tell you what a lot of people do. And I definitely believe we started that trend. So that was kind of how we started, and that really started a whole evolution. Because when that started, then we started getting some guests that were really switched on, that people loved, that we brought back more than once. And I started thinking, hey, this person has a question. I don't know. Or like, I can half-ass this, or I can spend three hours Googling shit about it and figure it out and give the Jack perspective. But I bet you someone like Sean Mills would have a great answer for this. Or Doc Bones. Like, why am I answering a medical question when I know a medical doctor as a close personal friend who's also a podcaster in the same space I'm in? Why why would I do that? So I reached out, and I assembled the expert council. That was a huge evolution in the show. And the show has continued to evolve, and it one thing that always will be true about this show um, it will always follow my lifestyle to a degree. That's one of the reasons I'm really glad we have guests on because I could be like really heavily into biochar like I'm right now. And you're like, this is the biochar podcast or some shit. But by having a guest every week, sometimes two, there's always different niches coming in, even when I'm on one topic. And then I try to always stay varied with topics. I try to occasionally bring in the, the current event stuff and, and all that you guys, you know, that, that's one of the most popular shows, honestly, uh, that you guys want to talk about um, or, or hear about. But that's really how the evolution happened. Now, there are some real moments of pride in this. And I am a, I don't know, enthusiastic person. I'm kind of a dynamic speaker. I speak with conviction. And I think a lot of times people think that that means arrogance. And I do talk about myself a lot because I'm not full of shit. So if I'm going to talk about how to do a thing and I've done it, I'll talk about how I learned it. And I talk about myself, but I'm talking about it from a standpoint of experience. When it comes to actually saying things about myself, like I'm proud of this or I'm really great at this or something, I actually don't like to do it. I'm actually humbler than you would think. 
uh, everybody thinks I'm an alpha male. I think if you look up sigma male, uh, that actually more defines me than alpha male. And I think it actually defines people that I'm really good friends with more than alpha male that other people think of as alpha males, like John Willis over at SOE. I think we're, if you read the profile of what that person is, um, they're basically, I don't really want to be in charge, but if nobody else is capable, I'll do it. Otherwise, I just want to live my life and be left alone. But they're also the person who will crack you in the teeth if, if you need it, right? So they're not anywhere near the beta side. They're just less, the alpha tends to want to control things. And so I'm kind of this sigma male, which is actually, you, you, so you get taken one way and you are another. So when I say I'm proud of these things, I have to make myself do this. But I also think it's kind of important to the storyline. So some of my proudest things include things like the fact that people are literally alive today because of this show. And that's a huge, almost grandiose sounding statement, but it's true. And I remember the first time that that ever was made real to me. It was pretty early. It was about 2010, I'm guessing, or 2011 at the latest. I was at a prepper convention and it got in, in Denver, Colorado. And a guy came up to me, introduced himself, and standing in a booth surrounded by thousands of people, told his story. And it was pretty dramatic. And he said that he actually ended up sitting in bed at night with a gun in his mouth. This guy was a war vet, PTSD, a lot of problems, divorce. His, his wife was doing everything she could to keep him from seeing his kids. And he said he was like, I just I quit quit life. But I think when people are in that state, they're looking for a reason to say, no, this is not what I'm going to do. And his reason ended up being words I had spoken. I'm not going to say it was me. It was words I had spoken. I've always been big on what you do matters. If you go read my 12 tenets of modern survivalism, the 12th anchoring tenet starts with what you do matters. That's how far back it goes. And he said it was like a loop in his head, like he had his iPod on on loop. And it was just that one statement. What you do matters. What you do matters. What you do matters. What you do matters. And it wouldn't go away. He's like, you wouldn't shut up. You kept saying it. And he could just think of his kids and that statement. He rebuilt his life dramatically fast. He got himself into a program for alcohol. He started getting some counseling and he had built his life back. His kids were in his life. His wife sounded like a bitch in the beginning of the story, but he's like, I can see why she didn't want the kids around me. But when he changed his life, that changed as well. They had a great, though separated relationship. And he's like, don't ever think that you're just a podcaster. And I won't tell story after story of that, but there's been a lot of them. There's been a lot of them. And some of them weren't as dramatic, but they were very emotional for me. Same convention. Little gal walks up to me, older lady. And says, can I hug you? And I'm like, yeah. So gave her a hug and she tells me her story. And basically her story was she started listening to me almost at the very beginning of the show. I got through to her. She was living on credit card death, debt and stuff. And she really completely rebuilt her financial life. And she had a good income. So it didn't take long to fix it all. And three weeks before that expo, she got laid off. And at her age, getting another job that paid the kind of money she was making was, but she was in such a good state, she didn't even care. And she said, my life would have been a complete disaster if you hadn't gotten in my head. Those are some of my proudest things about the show. 
knowing you altered people's lives in a way you never intended to or never even tried to. And that was humbling and scary in the beginning. Like I was doing the show for a couple months, you know, only and people would be like, well, because you said this, I went out and did this and I got five cans of gas and I wrote one through five on them to rotate them. I don't have enough money for 12 cans yet. Like I'm like, holy shit, people are doing things with flammable liquid because I said to. I don't think I've said anything stupid yet, but boy, I need to be careful. And if you're going to ever start podcasting, understand that as you build an audience, even if it seems kind of small, you're influencing the minds and hearts of people. And I think podcasters do that in a, a huge way, a way that the media, as we think of it, the mainstream media, the legacy, never can because they're fake as fuck and you know it. So even the podcasters talking about fast pitch girls softball or something like that is going to have a relationship with his or her audience that a media personality, a talking head from the TV or the radio can never, never, ever, ever have. So if you ever start podcasting, no, you're going to have that connection with some people. Even if your show never gets big, even if it never makes you any money, in time, if you stick with it, you'll develop that. The other things I'm proud of, man, the communities, the sub-communities around us. The fact that I do a workshop once a year on my property that we charge 500, 600 bucks for, depending on what we're doing, and it sells out in less than half an hour. And the first thing people do when they get here is find other people from the community they haven't seen in a while and give them a hug. And people will, will take the time and the money to come here and do that. And we, and we don't, just so you guys know that maybe are new to this, I don't make a ton of money off of doing that. We, we do a little better than covering costs on those workshops and we have to so that my wife and I don't have enough tension. We get a divorce, right? Like the fact that it makes, you know, a few house payments or something that makes it a little more tenable because my wife is less outgoing than me, way less outgoing than me. But the, that community and then all of the communities that built around this and then the communities that are like splinter groups of splinter groups. And you realize, and then somebody tells you the story. So I was doing this, and then we formed our own thing, and now we do this, and now we have a meetup. We get together once a week or something, and you're like, so that's like three levels off, but it all started here. That is wanting things to be better for people enough to know that you can't control everything. And that's another piece of advice I have for podcasters, community builders, et cetera. You have to actually be willing to start a thing and get out of the way and let it grow like we raise a child. There's a point as a parent that you let go of a baby being a baby and see them as a toddler. And then you let go of them being a toddler and you see them as, you know, a, a, a young child, but but no longer a toddler. One can think and act and develops real personality. And then they become a teenager and they get arrogant and they always look miserable even when they're happy. I have a grandson like that. He's 12. They become teenagers and yeah, right. But at some point you have to let go progressively in more and more things. And if you, if you don't, then that growth can't really occur because you want to control everything. And this was one of the things that I had always tried to teach brands when I was a consultant, like we want to go viral, but we want to control everything. Well, then you're not gonna stupid. And then you get really mad. You can't go viral and control the result. You have to be willing to let go, and none of them would. And I got to do that here in so many ways that I never even conceived of. And there's all types of groups on social media and things like that. And seeing people like show up at this live chat and go, man, I remember getting an email from that person 14 years ago. is insane. And to see them carrying on, I'm very proud of all the businesses that came out of this community. Because it's thousands. 
it's thousands and it's several hundred that are full time going concerns that have replaced somebody's job income to the point where they've walked away. Now, there was a lot of vision that I had for TSP when I started it. But if you said, hey, do you think you'll be able to sit back one day and go? There's a whole bunch of people that run businesses because of your podcast. I would have been like, I'm not doing a network marketing podcast. It's not thinking grow rich with Jack. But it happened. And the entrepreneurship came in because I can't let go of that because it's a passion. And I'm back to this. If you're going to do a podcast, if you're going to build a business, tie your freaking passion into it. Not every single piece of it needs to be something you're passionate about, but the overriding thing needs to be because, honest to God, I did really well for myself. I came up in the world really fast. I made plenty of money, and I was a fat, miserable bastard before I did this. I really was. And when I found something, that was how do you think I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning? How do you think I essentially worked two full-time jobs at the same time? How do you think I got through that? How do you think I was willing to tell my wife, no, I'm not going to quit? Do you know how often I tell my wife no when she wants to drive in the snow and then? That's pretty much it. If my wife asks for something, she goes with enough shit, she gets it. I was willing to tell because this meant so much. You find that in your life and you tie it into anything. And you'll never feel like you really work a day for the rest of your life. I know that sounds like a cliche, but I do not feel like I have a job now. This felt like a job when I had another job next to it. The day I did this, and I didn't know how miserable I really was until six months later. Neil calls me. He had some problems going on in one of his companies. Ironically, the one I fixed. <laughs> and most of the problems he had were the problems I had fixed. That without me there and nobody being willing to enforce policy came back. And so he tells me a story. I give him some advice and I hung up the phone and I said to myself, I got to quit. And I realized how stupid that sounded. But what had happened, I got sucked back in, you know, like Al Pacino, they sucked you back in, right? Like I got drugged back in mentally in that short, short period of time. My head, I was back working in that environment again in a 20-minute phone call. And then I got the biggest grin, you know, probably that I've ever had. I probably had that bigger grin before, but probably no bigger. I was so ecstatic when I realized, you don't have to. You already did. You already did. But it wasn't all victories. There were some mistakes. Biggest mistake in the entirety of TSP was getting involved with Rob Gray and Mulligan Mint. And it wasn't so much that it was doomed to fail because had a third party not caused the failure intentionally as a form of sabotage and broken everything, it probably would have worked. But there was a potential for it to fail, and there was a potential for it to fail in a way that would cost my audience, some members anyway, a significant amount of money. And I got way too entwined with that, and it did cost some of my audience thousands of dollars. And I did everything I could. Rob owed me about 1,500 ounces of silver in commissions for my role in promoting the mint. And when he got into that tight spot, I said, keep it and fill orders with my silver. There wasn't anything else that I could do at that point, but I could have not gotten involved in the first place. And honestly, in a startup business like that, in a business that's such a thin margin business, 
I probably never should have. And I know for a fact that hurt me with members of my life. I lost people I'll never get back. Perma ethos was good and a mistake. And it's a big part of partnerships. We had partners in that business that didn't actually do anything. We had partners in that business that provided property and then spent money foolishly because they're not the ones that actually raised it. I was. The whole idea of Perma Ethos was supposed to be a community, and it turned into just a farm that people could go wolf at. I got talked into it because I wanted so badly to prove what could be done that I was willing to do it in a way other than the way I'd originally conceived. And I should have done that. And I made a mistake. And I think anybody that got involved with it, that you know, paid for a, a PDC, um, they got a good PDC. They got a certification if they actually completed it. Now, I will say that, in fact, even though the, some of that was the mistake that's on me, when I get an email like I did two weeks ago from a person who wants to know why they can't complete their PDC and get a grade on it right now, when, I, when the other partners and I all sold the company off to Josiah six years ago, I don't feel a big obligation to that person today. Okay, but at the time it was kind of falling in on itself. I did. And I did everything I could to try to write the ship enough so that people could at least complete their PDC and three hundred dollars for PDC is a deal. And so I think it worked out from a standpoint of getting an education. And Nick Ferguson's propagation course was part of that. And that worked out for people. And I know people running businesses because they took that course today propagating class. So in the end, it worked out okay, but it was a mistake. And it also hurt me. And those were two big visionary ideas I had that because honest to God, I believe because other people were involved and I had a limited amount of control in both of them. They were not going to make it because I've learned and the phrase I used to give to Neil and I had to still learn the lesson for myself. You can't breathe for somebody, you know, CPR aside, right? Like you can't be yourself inside another person when you give them something to do they won't commit to it like you will if you're that person that will commit 100 percent. and if you're doing your own thing at 100 percent, you can only break so much off of yourself to give somewhere else and when you take somebody not as committed you who's in that same break off a piece scenario it doesn't work i highly advise you to stay far away from partnerships unless it's a two entity partnership and both of you are full-time every day in the enterprise. Otherwise, you know, and if it's you're doing real estate flipping and somebody's loaning you money and being the cash, that's different. I'm talking about active role in a business. Unless you're both totally committed, it's going to be a terrible, terrible result in the end. And you'll wish you didn't do it. And just remember, a partner can obligate you because they say, yeah, we'll do this or we'll pay this bill or they'll buy a thing out of company money. And you're on the hook for it as much as they are. They can go out and extend, like be careful with the partnerships. That's probably been my biggest overall mistake uh, is partnerships. <sighs> Consistently generating fresh content has been something that you guys have done that more than me. You know, you guys have been the ones that have continuously pushed me to come up with new ideas, fresh ideas, and new content. But the other thing that's done it is the fact that I decided to do this in a way that tied my lifestyle directly to the business. I realized early on, if I thought something was interesting to talk about and I felt in any way that it fit the topics that we talk about, do it. 
And I realized that early on because I would do some episodes about gardening, unusual fruits, things like that. And I would think, do people that are tuning into a survival podcast really want to hear about jujubes, right? Uh, or, you know, um, edible hawthorn or something like that. Do they really, and, and, or, you know, nanking bush cherries or something like that. And I did get a few people like, what are you going to teach me next? How to make a pie? This is a cooking show or whatever. Yeah, shut up. Because they were the most popular shows. Because people were like, well, I can do this. You tell somebody, you know what? You need to get out of debt. Like, even though they can do it, it's a long process. You tell somebody how to grow, plant a garden or five different shrubs they can plant to produce food. They can literally go by the shrubs, dig a hole, put them in it, water them. And even if they're not perfect, they get a result. So one of the ways to always generate fresh content is not be afraid to go into things that you think are a little bit to the side of what you're talking about. It's why when I discovered Bitcoin, I wouldn't shut up about it. Right. And it's, it's why I've done entire episodes on how to build a business or Steve here is saying he loves to cook or on how to cook. You know, if you do a cooking show and people are like, well, uh, what does this got to do with survival? Do you store food? Yeah. Do you want to eat food that tastes like shit for 15 years when you're living through the apocalypse? No. Okay, then you better learn how to cook. Also, I promise to make your life better if times get tough or even if they don't. That was the show slogan. Like The show slogan is the worst and best marketing phrase I've ever come up with. It's actually terrible. It is a terrible marketing phrase. I would have never given it to a client as a consultant. Helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's too long. It's clunky. And everybody that goes to say it, you know, and I know there's a, it's weird to me that there is, but I know there's a little apprehensive or nervousness when somebody meets me first time and they're talking. But everybody that tries to say it, like, well, I love your thing. And then they try to say that phrase and they can't say it. A good phrase, a good byline is something once it's in your head, you can't get rid of it. You know, Coke, the real thing, you know, before Coke went woke, right? Um, stuff like that, you know, hurts. We're number one. It's short. It says what it is. It does what it says and it sticks in your head. But when I thought of it, I'm like, there's nothing that fits better what I want to do. So if I thought that it was a component of lifestyle design for that better, more resilient life, I talked about it. And that makes it dramatically easy to come up with new, fresh topics and content where if you're doing a podcast on chess. Well, if it's the chess podcast, you better be talking about chess players and chess boards and stuff. I think you can still do it. But I think that having something with a broad enough umbrella that you can literally talk about anything. I've talked about how to train dogs. Well, how's that a podcast for survivalism? Do you have a homestead? Yeah. Do you have a dog on it? Yeah. Do you want your dog to eat your chickens that you're relying on for eggs? No, then shut up and listen. Right. Like literally anything fits. And here's the secret. And some of you know this because you've heard me say it before, but a lot of people don't. The survival podcast is not a survival podcast. The survival podcast is a lifestyle design podcast. That's what we teach more than anything else. And by the way, the most popular tag that people use on the site to find shows within that niche that are so in that niche that they get a tag that says they are is lifestyle design. Lifestyle design are the most popular shows overall in 15 years. And even though they all are, but that really opens up everything. 
And then being willing to listen, being able to accept the fact that you might be wrong about a thing, because there's a lot of stuff. I'm like, ah, screw that. And then you look in and you go, ah, well, maybe this person has a point. Maybe this person has a point. Maybe I should dig more into this. And then when you dig into it, you either find out you were right or you find out they were right when they're right. That's interesting. It's very interesting to me when I'm like, oh, that's stupid. And then I look into it and go, oh, gee, it's not stupid. Now I'm really interested because now I have an opportunity to learn and grow and then share that with you. You know, I think another reason that we've been able to come up with fresh and new content is I have done some things where I bring an expert on and I purposefully don't learn about it. But that's a handful of times. Most recently with Noster, I, I walled myself off from learning about Noster so I could play stupid when I brought a person on without actually having to pretend. But most of the time I learn about a thing and I talk about it simultaneously. So I'm willing to talk about thinking, well, I'm really new to this. I don't know that much about it yet. And then that way we can kind of grow and learn together. And I think a lot of people are freaking scared shitless to do that, to be like, oh, I don't know. Like they're fine doing it with a guest. But to come on and go, well, I just discovered this. I've been playing with it about two weeks and I'm just sort of figuring it out. There's a lot of shit I don't know. But here's what I've learned so far. You got to have some confidence to do that. But the thing is, that you really shouldn't. You build a good audience, they're like, well, this is awesome. This, this is awesome because he's admitting he doesn't know. Where so many people want to act like they know. Okay, Boncast, if I'm taking questions. Yes, in all caps, please. Um, if you want to ask me a question or a talking point for when I finish with my bullet points, put your first couple words in all caps and we will star them. I think we've got like only six in queue right now, so there's room. Um, yeah. Now, technical aspects were never hard for me. And I think this is a good piece of advice for anyone on the podcast. I never made them hard. I never made them hard. I'm sitting here talking into a Blue Yeti microphone that you can buy right now. I think I paid $119 for it. It's plugged into a USB port on a MacBook and I'm using StreamYard. Now, StreamYard, we'll get to in a second. That was an evolution. Before that, I used Audacity to record. And I use this microphone right here. This is the original TSP. Actually, this is the second TSP microphone. This is a Samsung CO1U. There's a guy that started a podcast back before I had a good microphone. And he was like, your audio sounds like shit. I'm not ever going to use this thing. If I ever do start uh, a podcast, then what I'm going to do is I have plenty of time. I'll be able to... uh, I'll, I'll be able to just buy another one. I'm just going to give this to you and you have to take it. And I used that for a, a long time and it kind of crapped out. So I bought another one just like it. And when I started running dual machines, I decided to upgrade my mic and go to this uh, Blue Yeti. And it's also the case that this particular one is so old now, they don't make it anymore. So there's so many podcasters that they have mixing boards and they have an audio engineer and they got all this stuff and, and, and they're so worried about having perfect quality and they encode at like 128 kilobits. So a one hour podcast is like downloading a freaking movie damn near in size. And I was like 32 kbps is FM radio quality. Millions of people listen to the radio every day and it's good enough for that. It's good enough for this. It'll make downloads easier. I knew how to use a program called Sony Vegas, which is uh, really a video platform, but you can you can render in MP3. So I didn't learn a new program. Even though I recorded in Audacity, I just pulled the file in, 
rendered it out. I learned about a free program. I still use almost all of this today uh, called Levelator. And so you take the file as a WAV, you put it in Levelator, it levels out the volume, you pull it into Vegas, convert it to an MP3 and publish it. I didn't make it hard. So there were not a lot of technical challenges. I also know what I'm good at and know what I'm not good at. You know what I'm not good at? Freaking design. So I slapped together a shitty website with a stock image on it and, and, and had my designer force in my logo for the first uh, version of the site. So that's good enough. It's good enough. Don't give a shit. It doesn't look great. I'm worried about people listening to me, not looking at me. After, you know, you pick up a couple thousand listeners, like, okay, now I'll invest in redesign of the site. So I did. And I didn't try. I did not try for a second to do that myself. I'm like, I have enough shit going on. Paid somebody to do it. So the things that were difficult to do, I just paid somebody to do, got it done, especially things that didn't need to be done over and over and over again. How often do you redesign a website? If you're good at it, not often, right? So, you know, you tell a designer what you want. They make you what you want. You put your site up and you go on. You pay somebody a thousand bucks for that. You save way more than a thousand dollars worth of time. So I never had a ton of technical issues. Um, and you guys helped like the level later program, which is free. You just download it and drag a lab in it. And it like some of these emails, like your audio goes up, especially once I started having guests, when I started having guests on and they have different mic levels and all, and you're not sitting there with an engineer with a board. Like, so they just said, Hey, just, this thing's free. Just download it and use it. So you guys told me how to solve all my, uh, technical problems. And, so I didn't have a lot of technical issues. And I think, again, it's because I didn't make a lot of technical issues. I don't try to have, you know, a foam egg crate on the walls around me. I don't care that you might hear the tinkle of one of my freaking uh, fish tanks when the level gets a little bit low or the dog barks. And I, like, it is what it is. It's real. It's not fake. And I won't try to make it fake. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of would-be great podcasters never get great, they think it's about production. It's not about fucking production. Just my hard advice to you podcasters that have your third episode up after four months and you're still dicking around what freaking audio board you need. It's about passion. It's about content. And it's about consistency. And those are the three reasons it's 15 years later and I'm still doing this. Passion, content, consistency. You have the passion. You will be consistent. And that will give you content. Because that's what people want. The hardest thing to get from people today is not their money. Money's freaking easy to get from people. You have something of value. They want it to give you money. You take the money. You give them the thing of value. It's that simple. People that don't think they can make money, they just have, it's your own damn fault. You refuse to see that it's that simple. You refuse to accept that it's that simple. And it's probably because then you have to accept, if you're like a 50-year-old guy, that I've been screwing around for 50 years. I could have been making money. Right? Money's not hard. Attention's hard. What do you think all these social media companies want? Your attention, your focus. That's why they show you things that piss you off. So you get mad and you stay there for three hours dicking around while they show you ads and they harvest $4 of your life force from you that day. It doesn't really affect you, but you multiply it by millions or billions of people and they become super rich while they control your mind, right? That's, that's harsh reality. That's harsh reality. But it doesn't have to be that way. Not if you're real. When you're real, people know you're real. So when you have to get up and let a dog out in the middle of a podcast, like, ah, oh, shit, no big deal. I'll be right back. Maybe I'll go take a leak while he's gone or something like that. 
it's it's not about your production. It's about your lack of consistency. The reason people will listen to a podcast every week or every day is because they know it will be there every week, every day. If you go back and listen like through the whole body of work, which I don't advise at this point, it's too much content, but you will hear me on days where my voice is just barely good enough to do it. You'll hear me on days where I'm sick and my voice is off, but I go through it and I punch through it. And that's because I knew I can't count on you unless you know you can count on me. That's good advice for your kids. That's good advice for life in general, but it is survival advice for podcasting or any content generation business. If you're not consistently good at what you do and consistently reliable at what you do, you're not going to have anything. My, my nephew and his wife run a business. She's an Instagram model. Everybody thinks that's so easy. You know what they do? They do what I do. They do what I do, and they're not fake. They don't say she's single and she's up for grabs and crap like that. They don't do porn, and they make a damn good living because of consistency, and they love what they do, and they've integrated their lifestyle into it. You actually can do that. They're probably the only people doing that particular niche that way, and that's why they're so successful at it because they're not doing what everybody else thinks they need to do. It's, it, it's, it doesn't matter what the niche is. The big niches, though, of this show have been preparedness, obviously, permaculture, entrepreneurship. And I would say within entrepreneurship, that's economics, investing, understanding money, Bitcoin, all of it. Like it all fits in, in inside entrepreneurship, because when you're an entrepreneur, you think totally differently about money, its role in your life, how you can earn it, how you can make it, etc. And. So the preparedness niche was obvious because it's the survival podcast. You better talk about preparedness. But do you know, as a lifestyle design advocate, right, why I'm still big on preparedness? Designing a great life without resiliency and redundancy in it is a recipe to fail hard. Because there's nothing like failing when you're already when your life sucks. It isn't that big a deal. The higher you go, the further you fall and the more it hurts. So when you're when you're getting started and you're 21 years old, 22 years old, like some of you young people listen, you bitch. It's so easy for you. It wasn't when I was 21 and 22 years old and it wasn't for your dad or your granddad or anybody. I saw a thing on, on some social media the other day and a person was talking about, you know, you could save up eight thousand dollars and buy a house in 1954. I said, oh, yeah. You know how long it took? For a median income person, they're like, wages go up. That's the inflation you're bitching about, and median is better than half, okay? So it would have taken, I did the math, 24.24 24 years in 1950 to save up the house, the, the amount of money at 10% to buy a median house if you're going to buy it for cash, which was the implication made by the original post. It sucks for everybody, and you fail your ass off when you're young. And one of the things we've done with this artificial balloon bullshit we've put around kids today is they think if they fail, it's the end of the world. That's why your suicide rate of young people is higher than it's ever been in history. But if you're, if you're real about it, when you're 20 years old and you're broke and you lose a job, it doesn't really matter. You were broke before you lost the job. Go get another job. Shut up. But when you start to build a life, you pay down your debt, bro. Right. You you work hard. You raise your income. You find a great life partner. 
You get the things you wanted in your life, and then a failure comes, and you have no resiliency. You have no redundancy. That's like falling off a freaking multi-story building. It hurts, and some people never recover from it. What good is the design of a great lifestyle without redundancies for when, not if, failure occurs? People generally are not too stupid to know that once they have a certain amount of income and lifestyle and all, hey, life's, you know, especially when you're young, life insurance is pretty cheap. If one of us kicks off in a relationship, we should make sure the kids are okay, the other spouse is okay, with some life insurance. But then they have no food insurance, right? They have no economic insurance. You know, getting a lot of money when one of you dies doesn't mean you have a lot of money when one of you gets sick or fired. So you have to build the resiliency. That's the preparedness component. The permaculture component is, well, how do we design a life that provides all our needs? And when I found permaculture, like, okay, so it provides us housing, food, shelter, economic uh, capability, stability. We can literally design things to keep our house cooler or warmer. Like it, it was like the permaculture designers manual by Bill Mollison is literally the best survival manual ever written. Plus it followed this passion I have for food and beauty and nature because I love my garden as much as I was watching Red wasps fly in and kill pests today. And it was like watching a war, like these superior aircraft just coming in and dive bombing the shit out of the enemy. And I'm like, this is awesome. And I was watching, you know, dragonflies skim over my ponds. And my big platinum koi come up and gulp a piece of Azola. Like, I, 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 it was just something that when I found it, it fit perfectly with what I already knew. But then I realized I didn't know anything. I knew how to garden. I didn't know permaculture. I had heard the word. I thought permaculture was you plant a tree instead of a field of corn. That's it. That's all I thought it was. Somebody sent me Greening the Desert, the first one, the crappy one, like the seven-minute long one with Jeff Lott in it, where he's not even really in it. It's a picture of him like this while he's talking, and it's just a slideshow. If you've never seen it, you should look it up. But I realized, okay, these people did this in the Dead Sea Valley of Jordan? And I was bitching on the air about how hard the North Texas climate is to grow. I'm like, I got no excuses. Then I found Bill Mollison in Engraved Danger of Failing Food in the Global Garden Series, and I was on. And it became, and it's led me to some of the best experiences being a speaker. And generally speaking, even today, no matter what I speak at, if I'm going to go do a presentation to a live audience, it's generally on some aspect of permaculture, biochar, aquatics, you know, gardening, whatever, how to run a homestead, et cetera. And so that's how that came in. And then the entrepreneurship thing, I sit here doing it. I sit here being a guy with a multi six figure income that walked away from it in 18 months telling you, get out of the cities, get a little homestead, build a lifestyle. Homeschool your kids. Like all these things I'm saying you should be doing or working into your life, the ones that you want anyway. And you get people emailing you go, dude, I make 35 grand a year. I can barely survive. How the hell am I supposed to do all that? You point out a problem as a podcaster, you better have your ass, not a solution. You better have multiple solutions. The bigger you, your audience, the more diverse your audience is. It's just law of numbers. And the more unique circumstances people are in. But I'm, I'm a believer. If I hand you 10 potential solutions and you say none of them work for you, you didn't want one. 
So I will be the hard ass, but I will also be the caring, you know, mentor that's like, hey, here's ways to do this. And entrepreneurship, guys, is the number one force of liberty in the life of an average person that does it. You cannot get as much freedom if you got everybody elected to every political office you wanted from dog catcher to president. It will not improve your liberty probably at all. But let's just say it did. It won't come close to the liberty that you obtain when you work for yourself, you do things your own way, and you don't worry about money. It doesn't mean you're mad, crazy rich, but it does mean when your wife goes, hey, our, our, our two great nieces are staying with us tonight, and so is our granddaughter. Why don't we take them out to eat? And you just go, okay. You don't go, well, let me check the checkbook. The liberty in that. And at the same time, you don't go, Yeah, I hope I don't get laid off next month, even though we have money. The liberty from real entrepreneurship is, and everyone that does it says it, and they all say something else. I understood it intellectually. I didn't get it till I did it. Every single workshop, there's one or two people there that not just started a business, they just crossed the Rubicon, right? They just crossed that point of, I don't know if this is going to work to, I just quit my job. And boy, I just went, I can't tell you when I hear that, like that is, that's payday in a big way for me when I hear that. But then when they start talking about what their life's like, you just, you just sit there and grin because you know what they're talking about. And you know, the people listening that are encouraged and inspired and they might go do it too. They don't actually understand it yet. Think of anything you ever did that changed after you did it, what it was really all about. You know, one experience for me was jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. It was an adventure. I wanted to do it, you know. But when you go out that door and you go from a roar of a freaking aircraft that's been flying since Korean War to like this quiet and jarring shock and then floating down. You can't understand that until you do it. Well, actually own something that you build from the ground up yourself that no one can ever take away from you. If it ever goes away, it will be you that did it to yourself. And to know my future is secure. And if I decide that I want to change something in my life, I don't have to ask. Nothing in the world. Dogs are going crazy again. I'm going to shut the door. I think the family's home. All right. One more edit for the audio stream. All right. Um, Nothing in the world will ever compare to that. Look at the freedom a person who owns a business a real business, not they're a, they're a contractor, so they don't you know technically work for anybody, but you get a job, you have to go do that job, right? Look at the ability. Like, you're going to see that, like, a lot of the people that come to the party, the 15-year party, one of the – now, there'll be plenty of people that are employed, too, but one of the reasons a lot of people can come because they didn't have to ask anybody. They're like, bro, I'm going to go. I'm going to call it a networking event. I'm going to write off the mileage. If I'm going to stay in a room, I'm going to write that off. If I if I go to the bar while I'm there and pay at the cash bar, I'm going to write that off. It's going to cost me 
a quarter of what it would cost the average person by the time I get done working this game. And I'm going to go do that. And while I'm down there, you know, I'm going to visit so-and-so or I'm going to, I'm going to cruise on down to the coast after my jocks party. I'm going to go fishing for a week on the beach. You don't have that liberty until you create it for you in your own life. So the entrepreneur thing, well, I'll put it this way. Back in the old, 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 olden days of TSP before, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all these different social medias took off and people actually used old school forums. We had a forum. Eventually, we got rid of it because it wasn't being used enough to be worth the resources necessary to maintain it and deal with spamming and stuff like that. So we kind of shut it down. It's in an archive mode. You can read everything that was ever put on it. Um, but at that, you know, in the beginning, it was something that I was very active on. In fact, I was like three months into the show and people from the audience reached out and they were like, you know what? You're going to give us a forum. Not we want a forum. Like, no, you need to give us a forum. I even had some early people that offered to moderate. We'll moderate, but you will do it. So I learned how to build a simple machines forum from the ground up, built it, configured it and what have you. And once I got that done, turned it over to those moderators and I was on there and I had a little icon of, of a, a character that a guy wrote into like a graphic you know, comic novel that was based on me. And I ended up making that my icon on the forum. And the catchphrase underneath it was liberty is precious. Fight to keep it. That's that's what I put you know underneath it. That was kind of my slogan for my character on the forum. Liberty is precious. Fight to keep it. Well, if you're going to say that, then you better again solutions. For how do I get more liberty in my life? Because it ain't voting, it ain't ballot initiatives, it ain't none of that shit. It's you are within a system that is predatory, and you need to get into a position where the predator has the least access to you. And the predator doesn't just take your money or your freedom of movement. It sucks your life freaking energy. That's what the predatory system of the oligarchy really does. A person ends up giving the best years of their life, 20 to 70, with a dream that one day I'll walk down the beach like that commercial from American Express Financial Liars, and live those last years of my life, great. You want to live the best years of your life, great. Build something of your own. Now, I know entrepreneurship's not for everybody. Well, then the other side of it is to learn to treat your employment like a business. And learn to make yourself so valuable that you can move around. And you can occasionally say, I'm going to take a new job. And when they say, well, okay, when do you start? You go in 60 days. And to be so in demand, they're like, well, we really need you down. You go, well, I can do it in 60 days. Or you can climb up a tree and jump out into a cactus ass first. Don't say it that way. But you can kind of you can kind of give that vibe. And I'm telling you, like, that's the that the best way in the world to make yourself desirable is for the party that wants you to come work for them to realize you're not afraid to say no. In fact, you're this close to saying no right now because you heard one thing you didn't like. Your stock value just went through the roof buying on a future of you. Why would you take that 60 days off? I don't know. Maybe it's 90. I don't know. But it might be because I want to go spend a couple months in Spain or wherever the hell you want to go. You can do that with employment. You can do that with a business. I think it's a little harder with employment. But if you just, there's nothing you can't design into your life. The only limitation is right there in that three pounds of gray matter in your, your, your cranium skull. That's it. 
I know that sounds like it's easy to say once you've done it. You know what? You're absolutely right. It's easy to say once you've done it. But instead of using that as an excuse, I want you to think back through your life from the time you were a little kid, barely old enough to wipe your own ass. That's about the point we start to remember our lives, the point where we can wipe our own rear ends. From that point forward, how many times in your life did you come up against something that you thought was impossible? And then once you did it, you went, well, that was dumb. That's easy. That was easy. You probably thought it was hard to tie shoes the first time you did it. Well, Jack, tying shoes and building a business are a big difference. Yes, there is. But the formula is the same. You learn, you apply, you accept feedback, and you keep reapplying until you succeed. And then once you do that, you go, oh, look, this is all you got to do. It's like building a fire. Once you learn how to build a fire, nobody can tell you it's hard to build a fire anymore. Well, everything's wet. Well, here's a cedar tree. I'm going to scrape some stuff off that, and I'm going to use that as my tinder. And if I get enough flame, even the wet shit will burn. Yeah. Like, And then the person says, well, that's hard. No, it's, and you're like, no, it's not. Yeah. Making money, not hard. Building a business, difficult, but not hard because the process is there and anybody can do it. And that's why I've never let it go. I think there's also a huge impact that podcasting has on your life. Professionally is, is one of the things that I, you know, I actually, by the way, this entire outline came out of ChatGPT AI. I gave it information about me and said, give me talking points for Jack Spirico for this podcast. And this is one of the talking points. How do you balance podcasting with life and work? Well, it's asking that because it knows that most podcasters have jobs. Very few people are like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a podcast. That's going to be my business right out of the gate. And I don't need another job. So there is that transitional period for those that do go full time. And it, what it actually did is it made me not as good at my job. Something had to give. Something had to give. You are, you are only capable of so much. One of my laws of life is you're a battery and batteries need to be recharged. When you're running 20 hours a day, you only have four hours of recharge. And I did that for about 18 months. And as I got closer to walking, it honest to God, even though I was fulfilling my obligation in ill and, and fixing those com- that company for him, I did it at a very high operational level, and I kind of tuned out on all the noise. It's all signal, no noise, as we say in Bitcoin. And so I do think that as a podcaster, if you do begin to become successful, and you start to see the exit door, the term quietly quitting will begin to apply. And it's just something to know so you can think about how you're going to handle it when it does. Um, but my personal life as a podcaster, I think a big thing that I've been willing to do is share a whole lot of my personal life with the audience on social media and all, but not all of it. And I think it's important to have boundaries and, and things like that. And I try to be nice when I meet people in public and everything. But there are places where I'm like, no, like I had a guy we show up. He's in my driveway writing a note to put on my he stops by my house and he's writing me a letter. He had stopped by just to see me. but We didn't have to be there. And I was probably a little tougher on him than I should have been. The guy was also a federal agent. So like. Especially if I don't know you, like, no, you're not coming on here. Like, like you have to have boundaries. And then you also have to have, like, a willingness to stop. The problem with doing your own thing is it's always available to you to do it. 
And if you're passionate about it, you probably will, which is why you'd be successful. There's got to be a point where you're like, this is wife time. This is grandkids time. This is family time. And that's one thing I've always done is not just have it like throughout the week on a regular basis. Like I am done now, but I have a problem and I will fix it for you tomorrow. Right. But I have certain things like when my wife and I go on vacation, we might post some pictures and stuff like that. But that's it's what anybody else would do. It's not working in on the business. Or I shut down, as many of you know, from a little bit before Christmas till after New Year's every year. I don't do shit. Sometimes I put rewinds up or something, but I during that time, and that's extended families in, like, you have to balance. And I think this is not just podcasting. This is any serious business. You have to have a cutoff point. One of the great things about our Arkansas years, we had an office because we couldn't have internet that was worth a damn at our house. We just couldn't get it. And so our office was only an 11-minute drive. But 11 minutes is forever when it comes to closing the door and walking away from work. And there's times I think, like, would I be better off if I had an office space instead of just this extra room that I use as an office? Like, I've literally thought about, like, correcting um, uh, or converting, like, a tough shed into an office that's just separated from the house. And I, I don't need – if I'm going to do that, I'm going to build a tiny house and – uh, figure out how to rent it out or something like that. Right. But I've thought about that because that was nice. That was nice. Those years were really nice. Um, if you're going to be a podcaster, you know, my advice to a new podcaster, I've kind of already said it, content, consistency, passion, and focus on workload over audio quality, right? Don't have ass audio quality. Go out and spend 100, 200 bucks on a good microphone. If I was going to podcast today coming out of the gate, I would use StreamYard, which is what I'm doing now. When I switched to StreamYard, everything got easier. I get done with an episode, download a file, throw it in the editor, put it up as an audio, embed it in a post, post, and it's in multiple places all at once. Interviews are fantastically easy with it. This technology didn't exist when I started. Embrace the latest technology. I won't say anything more about that because I'm going to hold that for my last bullet point because it's about the future of this show. But that would be one piece of advice. The other piece of advice is whatever you set on that consistency, as I'm going to do a weekly show, then it like weekly, I'm going to tell you, you don't have an effing excuse to miss a week if you're doing a weekly. If I can do five, five a week in a car, you can do one a week for a weekly. And it is the minimum threshold of you having any potential to have long-term traction. And I honestly think it's not enough. Like three a week, I think is plenty. Five a week is what I do because I had people in the beginning, you know, you should do less. You're going to burn out. Like you're asking uh, – you know, a guy that plays baseball, how he swings, and you're telling him to change how he swings, and he's hitting a lot of home runs, he's probably not going to listen to you. That can, you know, this is something that I was completely engrossed in. But you have to have that consistency. Don't be afraid to talk to people. Don't be afraid to ask people to come be on your show. You'll be surprised how many people you think are too important to be on your show will be on your show. But I will also say, like, if you're dealing with somebody that gets a lot of interview requests, if you're dealing with somebody who is a busy person, and you ask them to be on your podcast – you're up to like episode three, they're probably going to say no. And it's not because they're a dick. And it's probably not no, it's not yet. And I've literally told people, go get 25 episodes behind you. Show me you're serious. 
then I'll come on your show. And, and, and that's kind of been my threshold because if I said yes every time somebody asked, I wouldn't have time to do what I do. I, just, I was just asked to present uh, at an event associated with Anarchapoco, a virtual event. I told them, you know what? I want a thousand bucks. I ain't heard back yet. Maybe they'll give it to me. Maybe they won't. I don't know. But all I'm saying is that I'm getting weekly requests to be presenting in person, virtually, et cetera. And I got to have a filter and money is a filter. And you showing me that you're serious is also a filter. And so when you're brand new, don't be afraid to go after, I don't know, for some reason, Tim Ferriss came into my head or I had Gary Vaynerchuk on my show, right? Don't be afraid to go after somebody like that right out of the gate. They might say, yes, you might hit them at the right moment. You know, I've done it. I've done it for people that are on like our second or third episode. And I'm like, you know, I need to, I, I just had the thought this month, I need to say yes to something I'd normally say no to and help somebody out, you know, in, in the beginning of, of something. And then that day, that email comes and you got lucky. A lot of you know you've gotten lucky. A lot of you know you did not get lucky on that. But you know when I really feel good about it? You get an email. Jack, I approached you when I was on my second episode of my podcast. I asked you to be on the air with me. You said get 25 under my belt. I just published episode 40. I'm wondering if you would come on and be episode 50 for me. You bet your freaking ass I will. That person has more chance of getting me than the person who asked me when they got to 50. Like seeing them come back at it, like they were given a challenge. It was an issue. They made it happen. It came back like new podcasters. That's and I'll tell you. But the other thing is, don't think that one big guest will make your show. And don't think that one big appearance on somebody else's show or in mainstream media will make your show. I was on Glenn Beck years ago. And uh, it was a big hit. It's certainly something you can put on a speaker's agreement or some Glenn Beck show. I was on Judge Napolitano's show. Uh, it was Houston Chronicle, Chicago Tribune, stuff like that. That all helps pad a, a speaker's agreement or something. But what happens, you get on something like that, you get this huge pop, and it slowly just weeds back down. And maybe you stay a little bit above where you were before it happened. But it's it's not worth giving up who and what you are for it. I can't tell you how many times I said no to that. Like, so the other thing is if you do start hitting things well, you know, doomsday preppers, all that shit, all they wanted was to get me on doomsday preppers and make me look like a loon. Man, we wish millions of people. I, mean, I don't give a shit. You know, back then I had about 50,000 downloads an episode. I don't care. I pay all my bills. I don't need you. But that's that liberty I was talking about again. When you get to where you have independently wealthy, but income independent, your income is not dependent on somebody else's decisions. You, you That's fuck you money. That's like you know, they say when somebody has like a billion dollars, they have fuck you money. I don't give a shit what you do. It doesn't matter. But when you have a consistent income that's more than you need, you're there. Then you can say no to shit that you would have otherwise been twisted and, and forced into. I get an email a week or so. Hey, Jack, I met you at or I know. And it like pitching me their bullshit and telling me how much money I can make if I sell their crap for them. If that is your freaking first email to me, not only will I say no, I will never work with you. If you come out of the gate, I just did it to someone this morning. First introduction. Hey, if you sell this much, you can make that much. I don't even know what your shit is yet. No. Stay away from people like that as a podcaster. Stay away from partnerships. 
me and my buddy, we're going to do a sports podcast. When? Well, I don't know. We can't figure out what day we can get together. See, it will always be that. You do a podcast, and when your buddy's available, if he's serious, he can come on there with you. It's something you do. If you employ somebody to do any piece of it, pay them a fair wage and fire their ass when they don't do well. But this whole idea of this two-person podcast, if you're married or something and you have that unique relationship, I know some of those work. But in general, you do your podcast, and if that person is going to become a true co-host, let them earn it. Let them earn it. Be in control, be in charge, and that way you'll meet that consistency. That's the best advice for new podcasters. Reflections, what would I have done differently? This is interesting to me because there are some things I would do differently. But I'd also have to be very careful with that. John Willis recently asked me on one of the discussions we do, first Tuesday chat, me, Nicole, and John. And John said, well, if you could go back in time, what would you tell your 20-year-old self or something like that? And I'm like, the truth is, talk that level of back in time, absolutely nothing. And he was kind of blown away by it. And so, well, because I've watched enough Star Trek and shit. I know what happens when you change one thing in the past. I watched the Homer Simpson episode with the toaster where he killed all the dinosaurs because he sneezed on them and everything went to shit. And Ed Flanders became the, 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 the talking head in 1984. I know how bad I can screw up my life by changing my past. I understand that and I don't want to do it. So, that said, I can still, you know, you have to look at it from, well, were these mistakes? So things like I would not have done perma ethos, at least not the way I did it. I would not have even touched Mulligan Minute. It would not, I would not, the box of silver I have from the beginning of it when everything worked right is not worth what it cost me. I would have never done that. I don't know how much else I would have done different. I think I would have embraced new technology faster. I think I would have gotten on to something like a StreamYard platform faster. Uh, That's something I can say I would do, and I don't think that would have upset the timeline and caused the Romulans to invade Earth or some shit like that, right? So, like, I probably would have embraced the latest tech faster, which is kind of to my, my last point, which is next. I, that's about it. That's about it, because everything that I can look at that was a mistake, and there's lots of them, were necessary learning steps. Like, it's easy to say, well, if I went back, I would do this. this, I would buy more Bitcoin. I would have spent less Bitcoin. I have a $20,000 shotgun if you want to see it. $27,000, whatever it is right now. I paid a Bitcoin for a Browning A5 Belgian-made pre-World War II shotgun that was worth about $1,100 when I bought it. It's probably worth about $2,000 right now. What did I really pay for it? 600 bucks. That's what Bitcoin was worth when I did the trade. Guy wanted to get into Bitcoin. There was a barter blanket thing going on. And it was like, I'll give you the Bitcoin, but I'll teach you how to install a wallet. I'll teach you how to secure it. I'll teach you how to back it up. So it was like money plus the consultation. Back Looking back in time, was that a mistake? You know what the mistake was? Not replacing the $600 Bitcoin and paying it out of cash. That was the mistake. So that's it, easy to say. Like, you know, I would have never interviewed this person. There's a couple of people I interviewed that I really like once I realized what I was dealing with, I, I wish I didn't. There was a gal named Julie Beeling or something like that on essential oils. And I don't have anything against essential oils, but it turned out she was a network marketing shill. I, I wouldn't have done that interview, but I didn't know when I did that interview. 
I let Sally Fallon on the show before I knew she was an absolute intellectual property thief misusing the name of Weston A. Price. But I didn't know. I had to go through it to learn. You know? Um, there, there's a lot of stuff like that. I just don't know that I could have, you know, if I knew, I wouldn't have. But I didn't. So how can you say, how can you say you would change it? Because you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Uh, Joel Scalson, real big name, strategic relocation, all that. I didn't know the guy thinks he understands Mormon prophecy and there's going to be a nuclear war because of Mormon prophecy. I don't begrudge anybody their religious beliefs, but I don't I don't bring people on when they're coming from that place, because to me, that's that's a non-reality. That's not like every Mormon believes that either. That's like like a subset of a subset of a subset. I didn't know his whole thing was the Chinese are going to take over the world and torture everybody. So I wouldn't have I wouldn't have brought him on the show. I have nothing against him. I'll speak right next to him at an event. I don't care. But I wouldn't have brought him on the air. And there's a few people like that. For all the good Stephen Harris did, some of the shit and the way he talked to this community, I should have cut that relationship off faster. But I actually feel good about when I cut that relationship off. I don't talk about this, but I had been through it so many times that when it came down to look nothing against you, man, but you just do your thing and I'll do my thing. I didn't feel guilty that I didn't try hard enough as his friend to keep him around. I felt like I went well past where I should have. So that made it so like, I don't know that I can honestly say there's a lot I would do different. There's mistakes that were made, but I don't know, you know, obviously Mulligan mint would be the one that if I knew it was going to happen, I wouldn't have done. That, that's the, you know, and buy more Bitcoin. And, 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 you know, the things are, the things that I would do differently are the things that I still do consistently the way I should have done them now. That's how you know you would have done it differently. Just because you say, well, I would have made that mistake back then. Have you corrected the mistake in your daily life? Just some thoughts. Um, future of the show, what's next? Long, long time ago, somebody made a comment on the blog from an episode. don't remember which one it was, but it was, a, and I think it was uh, Insidious. David Murphy, um, who said something along the lines of new businesses always have advantages over old businesses. And it's because the new business, the new entrepreneur, the startup will always use the latest technology in building that business. They'll use whatever the best thing available is at the time. The legacy business will have ingrained legacy tech. And as I get older, Again, I'm, you know, I'm the age a boomer was when I started, right? I'm all gray now. People say I look younger, and I'm like, maybe if I dyed the beard, I guess. I, I do look younger, I think, because I lost all the weight. But, you know, I don't want to be the person. I don't want to be the person who can't see the future and hides from technology. My, my late father-in-law... After his wife passed away, he was lucky enough to find somebody to spend, you know, most of the rest of his life with before both of them went downhill. And she was a wonderful lady named Lavinia. And she wasn't that old when this happened, you know. We were at her apartment. My son was there. My son was a kid yet. He was in like early, like first or second year of high school. He's in his 30s now to date this. And uh, his phone rang. And he had some wacky ringtone on it or something. And she's like, oh, what's that? 
And he said, it's, it's, you can change your ringtone on your phone. And he said, give me your phone. I'll show you. Oh, she goes, oh, you better not. Now, I know exactly where this came from. If you're as old as me or older, you probably remember a time where if you had a phone in the house and you want to move it to another room, you had to call a phone company so they could come out and unplug it and plug it into a different jack. When we moved into the house we had in Pennsylvania, I remember my son going, there's a phone cable here. It's in the way. We're not going to use it. I'm like, well, unplug it. He's like, I can't get it out. You can't get it out. You know how a phone cable works. Yeah, I can't get it out. So I go over, look at it. And the jack was literally stapled into the wall plate. I'm like, oh, and I had to tell him, like, this is what they used to do. Right? So that's where her head was. The fact that in the 70s, you rented your phone, the phone company, it was still that way for her, even though we're talking like early 2000s here. I don't ever want to be that person. I'm not naive enough anymore as I've gotten older to think that it won't eventually become who I am. What I want, though, is to put that off until I'm, you know, eating oatmeal through a straw or something. When I when I can't, that's okay. As long as I can, I want to be willing to embrace new tech. That's why you're like, why is this 50-year-old prepper dude excited about AI? It's not that I'm excited about AI. It's that AI is the future tech upon which my industry will be built. I can ignore that and go, I'm old school. I don't use nothing but audacity. I ain't getting on no YouTube with those assholes. I ain't going like I can be that guy. It's easy to be that guy. It's easy to be comfortable. But comfort in business is death. The liberty, the freedom I talked about earlier, it's all there. But if you're not building, you're shrinking. And if you're shrinking, you're dying. Think of it like a human life. You grow. And when you stop growing, you start dying. For some people, the dying process is really short, and some people it's really long. For some people, literally, literally for some people, they stop growing when they physically stop getting any bigger. And I mean tall, not fat. That's it. They get a job. They find a place to live, house, apartment, whatever, and then they coast to the death. They never stretch anymore. Some people grow until they take their last breath. People that get really old usually don't. There usually is a point where that person just finds contentment in the remainder of their life. But it's not at a time where you're building a business. And make no mistake about it, you're building a business or your, building's colla- your business is collapsing. It's growing or it's dying. I don't know if there'll be 45 years of the survival podcast. I'll be a pretty old dude by then. But I'm pretty sure this is at least no less than the midpoint, that there will be another 15 years. That this is at, at the very least the halfway mark. I'll be 65 in another 15 years. I may decide that, I want to retire or partially retire at that point. But that means I have 15 years in what I myself have called the largest decade of flux any living person will ever see. And I want to grow through it and into the next decade. So I'm going to embrace new technology. 
I've already in two weeks of committing myself to learning about AI gotten to a point where when I'm talking to somebody that hasn't yet, I, I'm already so far over their head, it's too much. It's amazing how fast you can learn a thing if you choose to learn it instead of coming up with excuses that you can't. I will continue to inspire people to build things in their own lives. And the truth is, I don't know. I can't give a full answer to that question. I'm humble enough to understand it. And all I have to do is go, how would you have answered this question right before your 10 year anniversary party five years ago? And when I look at that, I go, well, I know how I would have answered it. And so many things came that would have never been in the answer. Live streaming on on, on stream or just that. Embracing biochar. Working with AI. Becoming deeply connected to some really great people that I, that I wasn't connected to yet. Changing the way we do things as far as, you know, events. There's so many things that have come. That's the adventure. We all should plot a course and know the destination, but the journey should meander some. Because if you don't, then there's no point to it. There's an old movie. Adam Sandler's in this movie. I think it's called Click. He gets a remote control that lets him slow down, rewind, and speed up parts of his life. And all the shit that he finds boring, like a kid's recital or a graduation ceremony or something like that, fast forwards through it. Before he knows it, he's old as shit with very little of his life left. And he realizes that many of the things he skipped past can never be taken back, can never have it now. It's too late. The rewind only goes back like a minute or something like that. And it's gone. So in your journey, meander. And I'd just like to go back almost to the beginning of the Survival Podcast. Episode two. Episode one was just an introduction. I kind of laid out what I thought the podcast would become. And my show notes used to be incredibly brief, especially in the first couple of weeks. So I had no idea what I was doing yet. But this was episode two of the Survival Podcast, The Coming Financial Collapse of America. And this is what I wrote in the show notes. Unlike many survival-minded individuals, I don't believe we're going to see an overnight doomsday scenario playing out. Instead, over the coming years, I think we will see a slow and steady downward spiral of what we consider modern society. This episode outlines why I think it's coming, what it will mean for the average person, and what we should be doing to prepare for it. Do you think since two, June 21st, 2008, when I wrote those words and did a podcast, it was probably about 25, 30 minutes long about that subject, that we have been in a slow, steady decline? Do you know when, when I did that episode, I think our national debt was something like $9 trillion. It's $30 trillion now. It's, it's pretty striking, actually, how spot on that was. So the future of the show, look to the past. We'll keep doing what always worked. But we won't turn away from new information, new people, new things, new concepts, new technology. Won't quit growing 
until we're done being. That's the future of the show. With that, let me take a couple questions here. It's gone kind of long. The kids are, everybody's loud out there. Hopefully it's not too loud on the thing. Uh, Christopher says, will you tell us what kind of equipment you use and software? I think I did that, but I use a uh, Blue Yeti mic or a Samsung CO1U. I use both of these. They don't make the Samsung anymore, but they make, Samsung makes one very similar to it with some additional features. I edit with Vegas. When I'm not recording on StreamYard, when I do the voiceovers and stuff like that, I still use Audacity and I use Levelator. That's it. There, there's, like, I haven't kept anything secret. And I think that's another thing I'm really proud about with the show that I never hid anything. My revenue model is transparent. My memberships, my sponsorships, my affiliate work, it's all as transparent as it can be. And you know what it's ever cost me? Nothing. It's not like somebody else saw it, copied it, and stole from me. And I think there's so many entrepreneurs that you're so full of shit up your own ass. Well, if somebody knows my idea, man, your idea is crap until you execute it. When you execute it, people can see it anyway. So many people talk about doing a thing. You telling them what you're actually doing doesn't mean they're going to take anything from you. Never think any different. Thomas says, have you talked about guns? You've talked about guns earlier. I don't remember you talking about guns. Chambered in 5.7 by 2.8. Have you looked into the caliber four? What are your thoughts? I think it's great for what it is. I, I know people really love it. The FN weighs like a toy. Um, it's a great carry gun. It's very powerful. I don't know, guys. I like 45s. I guess I, sometimes I don't evolve. I like 45s, and I like the 357 Magnum, and I like the 357 Sig. So I, I carry either one of my 1911s, or I carry uh, my Sig 239, and, and I converted that from 40 to 357 Sig. Those, that's what I generally carry. I've also kind of got to the point, you know, I've done shows where I talk about how many guns does a man really need, and I don't mean you shouldn't have that many guns. I just mean, like, there's a point where, like, what could I do with this money? And I, I kind of feel like I have enough guns. It, if I bought another handgun, I would look real hard at that one. Anarchy says, here's to 15 awesome years and many more. Happy 15 year and $15 super chat. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. Um, Crafty Mark Master says, I absolutely suck at community building and participation. What would you suggest to ease into it? Leave with the relationship. Stop trying to build a community around preparedness or a community around permaculture. Go do things where people interested in those things come and make friends. I, this is the same answer I've given for 15 years. I'll never change. Lead with the relationship. If you approach people like, I want to build a community where we all get together and support each other, they're going to start thinking you either crazy, tin hatter, or a fed, or both, right? And that's just a natural inclination, you know? Ways to build community would be things like find a local community center or something where you can rent it out or get it you know, for free and run a movie night of like a permaculture movie. And advertise it on next door and invite people to come and kind of do like you bring a bag of chips or some soda or something. So there's food and like maybe have one of your older kids say, you know, we have a semi daycare environment if you have to bring your kids. And then just watch and have a discussion about something. The people that come are going to be interested in growing their own food. You know, Jeff Lawton's urban permaculture movie would be a perfect one for that. That would be one example. Um but stop trying to – I mean, the reason that you can't build community when you're trying to be, build community is because you're forcing it. I want you to think about men probably more than women, but I'm sure women have been on the other side of this too. You go on like a first date, maybe it's even a blind date, and the person on the other side comes out 
real strong with. But what I'm really looking for is a long-term relationship that will eventually lead to marriage and a family. Yeah, me too, but that's not my conversation on a first date. I don't know you yet. I've known you for 15 minutes, and you're talking about you want to know whether I'm husband material or not. I ain't for you because I don't go that way. I don't move that fast because it feels forced. Like, I would feel stupid answering that question to the affirmative to a person I don't know. My answer to that is someday to someone I don't know who or when. And so I think when you try to force community, you put somebody in that kind of a feeling state like where you're forcing something. And it, it's uncomfortable. It's like a close talker. For those of you who remember Seinfeld, when somebody's in your face and you try to move and they're a sidler and they stay with you, it's uncomfortable. But if it's, hey, we're doing a thing, you want to come to it. Hey, what's your name? Where'd you come from? Oh, that's cool. What'd you think? See, then it's just normal. I think one of the things we've really lost for community is all the little social engagements. Like where I grew up, there was a bar on every corner of of Minersville. And it, they were social hubs. There was the VFW. There was a rod and gun club. Like, and then the churches and all of it, there was this kind of community that just was. You didn't build community. You were part of one. And we've lost that. I don't know how to solve that, though. Um, the TSP tree must be huge. Congrats and thanks. I, I think looking at your podcast like a tree is a good thing. Because when you put up your first couple of episodes, nobody listens to it. That's a seed still on the ground. It ain't sprouted yet. Sometimes a tree seed takes 90 days in the ground before it sprouts. Yeah, so that's probably good. Crafty Master, do you still sport pirate chain? R. Um, I still think it's interesting. I think a lot of the use cases for alternative currencies have dried up and gone away. I think the last great use case for alternative currency other than Bitcoin is privacy. I think Bitcoin's solving that problem over time on its own and eventually will. That said, uh, for day-to-day use, if you want a privacy coin, Monero is a better play because it's more exchangeable. It's accepted in more places. I still have some pirate chain. Um, I came out on there and said this would have happened, but um, CoinX, who was the the biggest, easy-to-use kind of mainstream exchange that pirate chain was on, said they'll be discontinuing accounts for Americans because of the American government's bullshit with KYC. And so I sold the vast majority of the pirate chain I had at a pretty good profit. And if you want to know where my head really is, you know what I did with every penny of it? I bought Bitcoin. I bought Bitcoin. That's what I did with it. Anyway, um, Chuck says, cooking a duck for the first time, what advice do you have? Um, Parted out. Look up how to cook duck breast in a pan where you make the skin crispy and still leave it a little bit medium. Confit the leg quarters and make stock out of the rest. Uh, trying to wrap up now. That's about as much as I'll do on an episode like this. Uh, Riley says, why don't more permaculture designers start permaculture landscape installation businesses? This is going to be funny. I don't think they should. I think they should do what you said. I just don't think they should call it that. I think they should refer to it as edible landscaping, edible, sustainable landscaping. Regenerative is a better word, but this is a marketing thing. This is a marketing thing. Never use words your market doesn't understand and commonly use themselves. 
It's the biggest people want to sound intelligent, so they go get out a thesaurus and so they make up 15 syllable words and your market doesn't understand it because it's not the language they use. Honestly, God, one of the gifts of a good communicator is to you, communicator is use the words your audience uses or your counterparty uses. When I talk to a cop in a situation where I have to talk to a cop, I use cop words. When I am marketing to people that are suburban homeowners that I want to get business for a landscaping company for, I'm going to use their words. Full service landscaping company specializing in edible and sustainable landscaping. You know what that means? You want fruit trees, we can do that. You don't want fruit trees, we can still do that. It's sustainable. Those are buzzwords that are actually in people's heads. So I think people should do it. Now, why don't they do it? Because most landscapers are just trying to make money. They're not passionate about what they do. And they they don't know anything except what they learned in whatever requirements there were to be a landscaper in their place. Why don't more permaculture teachers do it? Because they're busy teaching PDCs and things like that, and they don't want to go out and be a landscaper. And a lot of them, a lot of them, I think, are so big into the ideology that they're not into the practicality. There's a lot of exceptions, but a lot of them are that way. Um, Crafty Master says, Jack has talked about places he lived for years ago. They sound much like my neighborhood. I got to think about this. Uh, Barnes and Noble off 30, uh, Highway 35 in Louisville, Texas closed. The Barnes and Noble off 35W in Louisville, Texas used to be one of my hangouts when I was a young, broke 21-year-old and I first came to Texas after I got out of the Army. I used to hang out in that place all the time. I'd buy a buy an expensive coffee and then treat it like a library for five or six hours. And I thought that was a fair exchange. I found my first copy of Backwoods Home Magazine uh, at that Barnes & Noble. That's kind of cool. Renegade Butcher said, I just ran episode 50. This community and the community that has built around my show since uh, is the why to my how. Congrats on the great 15 years, Jack. Here's the many more. You know, and, and watching a guy like Josh, who's now part of the expert council, that's Renegade Butcher there. Um, build his own thing is pretty awesome. And knowing he's part of our community is pretty awesome. Uh, Richard says, you're a jerk. After 40 years of low-paying jobs, I bought my first house 18 months ago, and I could do that because I finally started applying the lessons I learned from you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, for doing that and for sharing that with us. That's, that's again, that's a payday for me, folks. What is Jack's year of birth? He, is he older than me? I was born in 71. Just younger than you, bro. 72, 72. I'll actually become 50 in a couple months. So uh, if you look hard enough, you can find my exact birthday. I don't want to talk about it. Yet. I actually have never been a big fan of um, birthdays. I don't consider it an accomplishment to be expelled from a birth canal. Yes, I lifted that from Big Bang Theory. Uh, Anarchy said, what can one do with the Satoshi from Fold? How do they become Bitcoin? Satoshis from Fold are Bitcoin. Satoshis are just small pieces of Bitcoin. When you have enough Bitcoin in Fold to withdraw it, you send it to your own wallet, and it's yours, and it's Bitcoin. Satoshis are Bitcoin. Anyway, uh, that's an odd one. Hanging laundry says, Jack is just a baby. I wish I was a baby still. Sometimes I would, you know, I say I wouldn't go back and change things, but man, do you know how young you really are when you're 35 years old? You, you, I'm going to tell you, you, you men, 40 to 44, somewhere in that two-year period, is where your extended warranty runs out and no one calls to offer you another one. 
That's just just thoughts on that. Anyway, guys, I really appreciate you guys tuning in today. I know this went kind of long. Uh, thank you for taking your time to uh, to walk through memory learn lane with me. If you guys want to support this show, you know you can become a member. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and, and click on members to learn more. Uh, you sign up. You can help make sure there is 15 more years of Survival Podcast if you're not a member yet. And then you take my discounts. You get your money back. And you actually are profiting from supporting the show. That That's how I built that program. Um, today's item of the day for the T-SPAS catalog, because you can also support us. Just start your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Um, if you do that, you will help us out no matter what you buy, and you can find the item of the day there, too. Today's item of the day, the E-Tech City 4-pack of LED lanterns. I won't say much about these. They're on sale today for like 15% off. They're a great price all the time. They're not high-end, but at about 7 bucks a piece, they are a great piece of kit for your blackout kit, for camping, for fishing, to give your kids when they're scared of the dark, to light up. Like, I use them mostly when there's a blackout, and we want to have rooms where there's a light, and you don't, my generator doesn't run the whole house. I have a couple rooms where I have a little hook up on the ceiling. You can't even see it. You paint it the same color as your ceiling. It disappears. We walk in and hang one of those up. You walk in that room, you reach up, pull it down, the light comes on. That whole room is lit well enough to see what you're doing. That's one of the main ways we use them. But I've sold thousands of these, zero complaints. Thousands. This Yesterday's item of the day was the number one selling item of the year so far. This is, I don't know exactly the best-selling item of all time. This is in the top five. And this was the number two selling product in the T-SPAS catalog in 2022. Now, that says something that there's been no complaints about. E-Tech City is just a great company. If something ain't right, they'll fix it. You might get a DOA piece of electronics from them. It happens. When you sell millions of products, some will be DOA. Uh, but they always stand behind it. They always fix it. Uh, if you read the write-up on it, you can even read the email I got from the company explaining that to me. And I've been impressed with it. It's made me comfortable recommending them. One more thing before we go. What would I do different? I would have become an Amazon affiliate a lot earlier. And I would have started doing T-SPAS a lot earlier. And, and that would have probably not altered the course of things. It wouldn't have made me Homer Simpson with a with a messed up uh, toaster killing t- Tyrannosaurus Rex and altering the timeline. Because um, Amazon used to pay really well to affiliates, really well. They don't pay much anymore. Um, because I've got everything built already in a system in place, it makes sense to keep doing it. But back then, they paid 3x, 4x what we make now. And... Uh, that was missing a monetary opportunity that I w- I'm able to do completely ethically. Like I don't recommend anything I want to buy stuff like that. Like if I had started doing that back around like 2010 or something, I probably would have earned enough money to buy like a couple pieces of land b- beyond what I've earned. And so that's, that's something I would do different. So make sure you don't miss the opportunities as long as you can do it without compromising your ethics. My final piece of advice. Remember if you want to hang out, some of the coolest people. If you were asking about community day, what a great way to expand your community. Come to the TSP 15-year celebration, July 20th. Tickets are on sale now at survivalpodcast.com. I'll be back tomorrow with an expert council Q&A show for you, and we'll be back Monday, regularly scheduled program. going to bail you out just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. 
a better way. 